It's time once again for another thrilling episode of Mark Out Radio. Of Mark Out Radio. For the next hour, sit back, pull the stick out of your ass, and enjoy. Be warned though, smarks and internet know-it-alls will be offended, annoyed, and generally pissed off at what's about to happen to your ear holes. You've been warned. Now, Mark Out Radio. Welcome, welcome, episode 81 of Mark Out Radio with your boy Dark Fox here for March 31st, 1997, Roanoke Civic Center, Roanoke, Virginia, hosted by Tony Schiavone, Larry Zabisco, Mike Tanay, Mike Tanay, Bobby the Brain Heenan. Uh, this is Nitro's, uh, what do we got here, 42nd win in a row, we're coming up close on the, uh, what is it, 83 weeks, that's the supposed threshold, don't worry, we'll get there eventually. And you'll see just what a fucking clusterfuck it is to be in charge of a wrestling company where you're effectively a marketing jackass given the keys to the kingdom. And uh, and then, of course, you know, fuck it all up, right? Because that's sort of where we're going with this, isn't it? Uh, sort of. I mean, kind of. I'm more interested in the wrestling than the politics, but the politics do make me laugh. If you're uh, tuning in, watching this on Twitch, all of the uh, matches for this evening are listed therein. Uh, can I get a live stream here or there? Oh, thank you, producer boy. Well done. All right. So, like I said, 42nd win of the row for the ratings war. That is a row with a 3.4 to Raw's 2.7. Both shows are up this week, and this is Raw's best showing since August of 96 when they came within 0.2 of a point of ending the ratings streak before it even really started. This is the go-home also for Spring Stampede, which actually had a decent card despite the terrible name of the event and the shitty branding of the event. Now... For those of you that are questioning whether or not this really did have shitty branding, because, I mean, I get it. In retrospect, we look back at 90s wrestling and go, God, that was dumb. But, like, the tagline for this pay-per-view was, these men do solemnly swear to kick, fight, punch, stomp, and flatten anybody who gets in their way. Referring, of course, to the horsemen, but the horsemen they're referring to are Flair, Anderson, Benoit, and Mongo. Um, I just... I... <sighs> I, I don't even know really what to say here uh, at this point. It's just, uh, it's, it's, I, just, thank you. That, that, thank you. That encompasses it quite well. All right. Like I said, the card was quite decent with the exception of one match. Can you see if you can spot my tone when we get there? Rey Mysterio versus Ultimo Dragon, Akira Hakotu versus Medusa, Prince Ayakea versus Lord Steven Ringle, Pup, Ringle, <laughs> Regal, The Public Enemy versus Steve McMichael and Jeff Jarrett, Dean Malenko versus Chris Benoit, Kevin Nash versus Rick Steiner as a singles match for the World Tag Team Championship. What? That's right. One guy for the Tag Team Championship. Uh, there was a brief explanation at the end of the show. Uh, I, I just fuck it, man. Just fuck it. Lex Luger versus the giant versus Booker T versus Stevie Ray in a four corners championship match to determine the number one contender for the WCW world heavyweight title belt and DDP with Kimberly page versus Randy Savage with miss Elizabeth in a no disqualification match tonight though. 
We have another thrilling installment of Nitro, and WCW better get their fucking shit together because the ratings are too close for comfort. Now is not the time to take your foot off the gas, or indeed go to Dennis Rodman's movie fucking premiere. The fact that your movie premiere is on a Monday is sad in and of itself, but the fact that the boss of the company just decides to fuck off off to watch it is even worse. Anyways, there are 8,709 people in attendance tonight with 8,175 actually paying to be there, a $94,070 gate, and there was $62,000 in merch sales as well. Yep, we had merch sales numbers again for the first time in almost two months. The show kicks off recapping DDP getting his ass kicked last week while production forgets to mute the footage so that Tony can be heard over himself screaming from last week's footage. Good job, production monkeys. Well done. Yeah. Oh, I fucking wish. The intro kicks off with more pyro, including flames shooting out of the ring post. Tony's on a bump as usual, so things were starting off really well. The NWO arrived without Bischoff, Hogan, and Hall. <clears throat> also without DiBiase. I didn't notice it at first, but yes, also without DiBiase. Now, Hall is in his first WCW paid-for stint in rehab for alcohol. They're trying to get him into shape for Stampede. Um, spoiler alert, he's not going to make it. His promo a couple weeks ago was the last straw for Bischoff, who sent him off, or he was going to give him his release. Now, his release would have cost Bischoff a lot of money, so... Um, I don't think anybody really wanted that to happen. Um, I know that at this point, like Nash had never really been exposed to this demon before. Like, I think that while they hung out and stuff and they all kind of drank and things like that, I don't think he really saw like the messy hall until this point. And it kind of like, you can kind of see it on camera at the end of the show that it's kind of, it's fucking with him a little bit. Now, he will sort of come to terms with it to a certain extent, but like at this point, it's really fucking with his head. And, and and he's not handling it well, and he's not really, he's, again, like, if you watch, I, I'd actually caught this week uh, the uh, Kevin Nash, Shawn Michaels, um, whatever you want to call it, show on uh, WWE Network, and um, yeah, I mean, he's made it very clear. He wants to make money. He's not in it for the fucking art of the wrestling he's there to make money and that's good i mean fuck it man i don't <laughs> i don't write and i don't do this podcast for shits and grins it's fucking sakes man it, it makes some it makes a couple of bucks otherwise i wouldn't be doing it anyways this match is kick off this week lex luger and the giant defeating rick fuller and roadblock zero point zero just Fuller and Roblox get no entrance, which, you know, shouldn't really surprise anyone. They get a ton of heat after Luger and Giant make their way into the ring. Giant using no baby oil now, while Luger has doubled up on his coating to the point where Fuller would actually get more shiny as he worked Luger during the match. So that's awesome. Roblox gets the tag, and you know how they say black is a slimming color? They lied. Luger botches a simple knee to the gut running cut off by Roadblock. Again, Giant and Luger fuck up their timing for the double tap finish. I'm not sure if they're ever going to get this, but they definitely didn't this week. Luger is so blown up at this point that he can't even rack Fuller, who did everything he could to help him get him up there. Luger ended up just grabbing onto Fuller's big fucking hair and trying to rack him that way. And I mean, Fuller was tapping like even before Luger had him on his shoulder. It was just... Oh, it was just a clusterfuck of epic proportions. Stevie Ray and Booker T run in and blindside Luger and Giant. We go to break as the four men continue to fight. I it was actually a good spot and a great way to get some heat on their pay-per-view match. It was just the match itself 
was just fucking garbage. If I was going to rate this as a promo, sure. I mean, it probably rate like a maybe two and a half or something like that. It wasn't, wasn't that good. Gene does a rap promo with Harlem Heat. Booker cuts a very good promo. Stevie starts off rough, comes around well, and then finishes like garbage. Sherry wraps everything up reasonably well. Overall, decent promo. Uh, Tushi Yomatsu defeats Mike, Mikey Sotomura. Satomura? Satomura? I'm sorry. I, I, I botched these names, man, because I suck at it. I, I'm not the Japanese wrestling fan that my former co-host Derek was. Uh, defeats her in the first round of the Women's Cruiserweight title tournament. Now, I gave this match two out of five. Now, my rundown had this match after the women's title match, which is ironic since it seems like even online resources try to bury women's wrestling. This match, though, is the first round to crown the inaugural Women's Cruiserweight title. It would be billed as a 10-woman tournament, but we would only actually have two first-round matches. So for those of you that passed math class in grade two, that would mean that there's four women. Um, before you get all excited, though, this whole thing was a big marketing stunt. The title would only ever be defended in Japan in the Gaia promotion. WCW paid for a belt, put their branding all over it, gave it to a Japanese female wrestling company to defend on non-WCW shows, and then would retire the belt less than a year later. <laughs> When Gaia and WCW ended their partnership, Sugar Sato was the last champion of record, and when the relationship ended with Gaia, they allegedly mailed the title back, but WCW never did actually get the physical belt back. Allegedly, Sugar Sato or the former Gaia owner actually are in possession of it. Now, since WCW could never figure that out, there was no one to sue, and they really didn't make much of an effort to figure that out. It's just one of those titles that disappeared with the former champion. Uh, now, the wrestling nerd of me would like to see that title displayed somewhere at a wrestling museum or fuck it, even the Titan Tower. I'd settle for that. For those of you keeping score at home, yes, this is the cruiserweight women's title. Supposedly, the weight limit here was 130 pounds. Now, Toshi and Maiku definitely qualify, as did Malia Hosaka in the second round, second first round match. However, Sonoku Kato's lightest weight in wrestling was 150 pounds, just like Medusa. The final champ, Sugar Sato, was 160 pounds when she won the belt. So, yeah, it was all marketing. It was shitty marketing. And, of course, the rules of wrestling be the rules of wrestling. No one listened to them. It was really done poorly, of course, because just like the WCW Women's Championship belt, it was given to a Gaia wrestler, went over to Gaia shows, was defended and stuff on Gaia TV, except that you would think that the whole point of spending all that money would be to try to get more Japanese eyes on your American product, except that no one was watching WCW from fucking Japan. No one. You want to know why? Because TNT wasn't broadcast there. Yeah, I'm just going to let that hang out there all naked and gross. TNT wasn't broadcast over there. So just like in Canada where we had it on Sportsnet, Japanese TV had it on the same channel that Gaia was on, except that it got the redheaded stepchildren booking for it. It was on Sunday nights at 11 p.m. So yeah, you could watch Nitro if you were willing to watch it from 11 p.m. on a Sunday till 1 a.m. on a Monday when you had to work <laughs> just a couple hours later. So it's no, it's not really a mystery why the partnership ended. I just don't understand why the fuck they would even do that in the first place. Now, Gaia had their world title and Gaia had their tag team championship belts. Those were the only titles that they had. However, after this cruiserweight title, they would also have 
two WCW straps over there to move around on to different wrestlers. And here's the other thing. The belts themselves, this is wrestling, of course. So the belts themselves couldn't be moved from one champion to another champion without getting WCW's permission to do so. Now, Gaia gotten shit by putting the Cruiserweight title on Sugar Sato without first talking to WCW. And like I said, Sugar Sato was a full 30 pounds heavier than she was supposed to be to be in the Cruiserweight division in the first place. Body positivity aside, there are weight classes for a fucking reason. Uh, so this whole thing is a big marketing ploy and chat Glenn mentions to offset the cost of the belt by Japanese merch sales. Uh, possibly, except for the fact that Gaia's, Gaia's merch sales people over there only sold Gaia and New Japan merch. They wouldn't sell WWE merch or WWF merch at the time. They wouldn't sell WCW merch. They wouldn't sell Glow merch, which is the women's North American version of Gaia. They wouldn't even sell WPW title uh, merchandise later on when one of their champions helped found the fucking company in North America. They were very... Um, they want it to be more internally organized is my nicest way of putting it. So if you wrestled in Gaia, your t-shirt probably be sold there. If it happened to have WC logoing on it, probably would be sold there. But it would almost always be Gaia-only merchandise or New Japan-only merchandise since they were sort of tied at the hip as well. Now, Toshi yourself is a complete newbie having just earned her colored tights. Now, maybe I should explain that for those of you that aren't really into Japanese wrestling. And to be perfectly honest... Before having Derek on the show, I really wasn't into Japanese wrestling either. I'd watch it, see that it's really stiff, and I kind of tune out because for me that kind of that takes me out of pretending this isn't real. <laughs> this is real. So in Japanese wrestling, you start off at a dojo, not unlike the power plant or nowadays NXT. When you break into the business as a paid wrestler, so when you go pro, you wear black nondescript tights. Uh, you don't, you're not allowed to color your hair. It all has to be one kind of color. If your one kind of color just happens to have like red highlights in it, shit, that's fine. But you can't like do pink or purple or something like that. That's considered an identity. And you can't do that until the bookers and the promoters think that you have earned it. First thing you get is colored tights. Then you can start adding boots and kick pads, hair color, etc. until you find your look. Now, some wrestlers get pushed to the fucking moon, just like they do over here, and get full sets of gear within fucking months of going pro, whereas others slowly add to it over time. Now, Maiko is still a new wrestler by Japanese standards, having broken in less than two years ago, but as you may notice if you watch this episode, she's got red tights that have, like, actual little cutouts in them and stuff, and red uh, kick pads over top of, you know, amateur wrestling boots and everything, so she has been around enough and she's getting pushed to the moon, but she's still really quite new. Like I said, break broken in for only two years. Now, current fans of wrestling, specifically WWE product, may remember Maiko from her 2018 Mae Young Classic match. She only had the one match. However, fans that watch NXT UK will absolutely know her since she was promoted to the moon in her arrival in 2020. And she is an on-air talent there as well as being a coach of the wrestlers that are in there. And again, the European slash UK style and the Japanese style is very similar in that it's kind of stiff. Toshi, though, is awful. Maiko is clearly the better wrestler in this match, but Toshi is getting the push, including some pretty obvious botches on her part. 
However, I will give her a little bit of props here. Her splash finish was pretty fucking decent, if a little bit stiff. After the Psychosis defeats Villano 4, I gave that 3 out of 5. Tanae blows his wad early, downloading everything that he knew about the wrestlers in the match within the first 30 seconds of the match, leaving Tony and Larry to fill in until Psychosis performs a corkscrew dive from the top rope that Tanae mistakenly calls a plancha, which is not what it is. A plancha has to go through or over the ropes, not from the ring post. A ring post is a dive. NW Dissension backstage as we break from this match inexplicably to go back and see that. Norton's arm is all bruised to shit, but Nash and Wall Street are debating who should be taking over as the leader of the group. While the leaders of the group were in Chicago or some shit, I couldn't make heads or tails of this right away until I dig digging into it for the last promo, which we'll leave it until we get to the last promo to talk about that. There's a well-performed short match in Psychosis and Volano 4. It didn't deserve to be cut from to watch the NWO bullshit backstage. They could have easily done that side-by-side picture-in-picture bullshit and just muted the match. Then we could have at least seen the action while watching the fucking childhood drama spin off into... Jesus. It was a clusterfuck, and it was dumb. Don't get me wrong, I understand it was really self-serving. And by the way, for those of you wondering, yes, this is Nash's first bite at the apple of being a booker. So this is going to be great. Gene has an in-ring promo after this with Ric Flair. Piper almost immediately comes down to the ring and these two masters of the stick joust for a bit. Just, you know, here's the thing. Sometimes I'll download you on what happened and sometimes I'm just not even going to fucking try. And in this case, I would be doing it a horrible disservice to try to disseminate what happened here. Just go watch this promo. If you don't have the network, it's widely available on YouTube. Learn how to search. The production monkeys, though, need to be fucking fired because Jesus fucking Christ. Thank you. They start playing Piper's music before the promo's even done. Now, the woman who came out was not some random fan. Now, it's funny because I was kind of curious at first because she did look familiar to me. And and I'm I'm kind of watching this and I'm thinking, well, maybe she's like one of those super fans or maybe she's one of the ring bunnies that like take the gear to the back or something like that. So I had to do a little bit of digging and I had to find a picture of Roddy Roddy Piper and his wife Kitty from 1997. And sure enough, it's fucking Kitty Piper. Uh, she was there with Colt and one of the other kids that I couldn't really get a good enough look at to identify. They did sweep crap past the crowd later on in the show, so it was easier to see it there. But yeah, of course she loves Roddy Piper. It's his wife. Did you notice how when Flair says, come into the ring, honey, Piper's backing off? Because Piper doesn't like the inference. Like, like his wife wasn't a jealous woman, but of course, you know, you're married. You don't want your wife to think that you're fucking around when you're on the road. So, of course, he's backing off. But as soon as he sees who it is, oh, he's all hugs and kisses and everything, right? Exactly. It's because it's his fucking wife. How is it that the dirt sheets that supposedly know everything didn't fucking bother Googling a picture of Piper and his wife on their goddamn wedding day? It's widely available. Jesus Christ. After this, Prince Ayake defeats La Parka to retain the WCW World Television title. I gave that two and a half out of five. Yeah, it is the real La Parka again, but he's wearing fake La Parka's gear as a gigantic fuck you to AAA for making this clusterfuck happen in the first place, which, listen, I'm all about that. That's fantastic. And by the way, for La Parka, there can be only one. La Parka backflips off the top rope right into Ayake, who doesn't follow him into the corner fast enough, and he gets the wind knocked out of him. He essentially gets kicked in the back of the fucking head. Now, 
<laughs> because the wind's knocked out of him, uh, Laparka gives Prince a chance to get his <laughs> get his bearings back by giving him some rest spots to recover. The bell ringing idiot calls for a DQ before the ref is because Laparka used a chair to jump over the top rope. So I think that the inbred hillbilly running the bell that night thought that anything over the top rope's a disqualification. Just started ringing the bell, and the ref waves it off. Tony throws the fucking ring belling idiot under the bus. It was fun for everyone. Post match, Tony takes part in a little revisionist history, and then Larry gives us the slow mo replay uh, in the Valvoline pin of the week segment. After this, Gene Ramp promo with William Regal. Gene recaps that it'll be Iakeo versus Regal at Spring Stampede. Already getting heat, Regal gets a little bit more heat by calling out the fans for being inbred hillbillies. If the shoe fits. He then shoots on Mysterio, totally overbooking Iakea, overlooking Iakea completely. Not the worst promo I've ever seen, but it's clear that nobody really gives a fuck about the Prince and would rather actually wrestle somebody who can wrestle them back. After this, Chris Jericho defeats Lord Steven Regal. I gave that four out of five. Regal heads down to the ring from his promo on the ramp, getting heat with every step that he fucking takes like a goddamn pro. Speaking of pros, Jericho gets a huge pop coming out and then works that pop all the way down to the ring, as usual, new tights and all. Speaking of uh, Jesus, inbred hillbillies, welcome to Virginia, where the fans will chant USA for a Canadian wrestler who's facing a British wrestler, and no one on commentary bothers to notice. So, thank you, Jesus Christ. For a brawler, Regal really sells well for flyers, but there are times, like in this match, when the speed is just, it's just killing them. He needs things to be slowed down a little bit so that he can look good too. Now, Jericho managed to slow things down for Regal's offense to start pretty fucking seamlessly. Jericho gets an interesting rollover, <laughs> roll up victory that leads to a post match beatdown as Regal gets pissed, takes out his anger on Jericho, and performs a very cool armbar flip off of the top fucking rope. And then a very safe pile driver, and then finally into the Regal stretch. Now, he's holding him in the Regal stretch, and this is when you have guys do run ins. Renegade comes down to the ring, but then like a pussy backs off before even touching Regal, because I guess Regal looked at him funny. Joe Gomez comes down, eats a shitty pile driver, and then he <laughs> that he tries to get out of the whole fucking time. Kidman gets ragdolled around the ring and then gets thrown out uh, when he tries to break it up. Somebody with silver tights and the red lane on his ass gets kicked in the balls and then tossed over the top rope before Regal goes back to beating down Jericho as we go to break. Now, this really made Regal look strong going into the pay-per-view despite eating a pin. So it was actually good booking here. I just, that's kind of what you want. I really don't feel like the Windows Tada is proper for this. I just, this was really good booking here. Okay, there you go, producer boy. Now you got it. That's better. All right. Hour two kicks off playing up the NWO Dissension, now with Tanae and Heenan on commentary. Then we recap the Flair Piper promo. Afterwards, Wall Street kicks the door open backstage and leaves the arena. Tony mentions that he thinks that this might all be a swerve. Sweet. Thanks, Tony. That's that's fantastic. God damn it. Oh, right. Akira Hokuto defeats Debbie Combs to retain the WCW World Women's title. Uh, you know what? The funny thing is this match was actually really not great. Um, I'm going to give it one out of five, and here's why it gets the one. Um, it gets the one because it made Hokuto look strong. Uh, other than that, it was just a fucking shitty jobber match. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, listen, I'm glad that we got two women's matches on the same card. Uh, this doesn't really happen in the 90s unless there's bra and panties involved. But I kind of wish that the women's belts would have stayed in North America or at least 
been in North America enough that the fans would have given a red rat's ass about them. The fact is that the tournaments happen, the belts get put on Gaia wrestlers, and then they fuck off with them, and American fans never get to see these belts being defended. So why would you give a fuck about these belts? Why would you care who's the champion? Why would you cheer or boo for anybody? Because who gives a flying fuck? You just know their belts are leaving anyways. I. Oh, here's the thing. A lot of men's wrestling is widely known, uh, especially among fans and smarks. But uh, Debbie Combs is often overlooked because of where she worked and when. Now, she broke into the business in 1975, and that's when women's wrestling was treated like it's kind of treated now match-wise. But it wasn't booked anything above mid-card level. So in other words, you got the true carny treatment. No one paid two bits to see the bearded lady, but they sure as shit did to see the elephant boy. Why? Because the elephant boy got promoted as an attraction to see. The bearded lady was treated like a freak and got promoted, deemed appropriate for her. Debbie Combs was the other side of the coin to female wrestlers that we all know, like Medusa, Sherry, Mula, and Mae Young. She was often put into matches with those women to put over their gimmicks or their changes from heels to face or vice versa. Think of her as the Randy, Randy Savage of women's wrestling in the 80s. She was not a fan of Glow, saw it more as a skin show rather than a wrestling show, which in some cases is fair. In other cases, it's a very old school way of looking at women's wrestling. Glow was the place where bra and panty matches were born. So I do kind of get her point for the first few years of her career. She traveled the territory, starting out in her home state, going between the NWA mid mid America slash CWA Memphis territory and the Southeast championship wrestling territory. She got called up to the AWA in the early eighties where she worked with Sherry and Medusa in 1994. WW hired her on a per appearance contract to face Medusa for the title. Then they wrestled one time on the wrestling challenge episode and she was replaced by Lanani Kai uh, for the, <laughs> for the WrestleMania 10 title defense match, which again, no one gave a shit about because there was no build for it. Uh, had they kept it as <laughs> Combs, perhaps they could have used wrestling challenge footage to put over the WrestleMania 10 match, but you know, it is what it is. Also, in the 90s, she was the head booker and president of women's pro wrestling. So that's WPW, like I was mentioning earlier, that had a very short-lived run that really only gave us Miss Jackie. Uh, they had a decent roster. The wrestlers just weren't really entertaining enough, and the promotion fizzled out. Jackie, of course, despite being a snorefest on the fucking microphone, can wrestle and looked amazing. And so she excelled after the WPW folded. Ironically enough, WPW and Glow and other women's wrestling companies had the same problems. There was an owner who effectively owned the girls, who kept them so close for poverty that they really had no choice but to stay with the company. Now, when Combs took over as the boss of WPW, Things changed fucking overnight. The old guard of male bookers got shit canned and she replaced them with women who knew what they were doing or men who didn't treat women like shit. Still, though, uh, in the early 90s, a lot of wrestling fans just didn't take women's wrestling seriously enough to go see their shows. To their credit, though, WPW refused to do the bra and panty shit. Um, at the time, though, in wrestling history, that's really all a lot of fans really wanted to see out of women's wrestling was bra and panty matches. The whole point of this match tonight, though, was to put over the champ building to Spring Stampede. Now, I can appreciate here that Eric is trying to establish a women's division in WCW, but it's being done in a very half-assed at best way. I, I appreciate the little effort that he's putting in, but let's be brutally honest here. Eric didn't give two shits about the women's division. 
Uh, he got his pop when <laughs> Medusa shows up and puts the title in the trash segment. Now it's up to Kevin Sullivan to book these women and get more mat time under their belts, but he seems more interested in dragging out his feud with Benoit. So that's all super awesome. It does fuck all for the girls, though. Here, Here's the thing. Now, if WCW really wanted to create a women's division, Wendy Richter was still wrestling. She was in Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling cartoon show. She's a name that people would recognize. She's also a former WWF champion. Natural heat with her and Medusa over the fucking title and the garbage thing. They could have brought back that segment and played it a hundred fucking times during that feud. And they could have had them wrestle every week and people still wouldn't have gotten bored with it. They could have brought her in. They didn't. They could have brought in Lisa Moretti. Uh, you might also know her as Ivory in the WWF because she was taking a break from the business. She had stepped away in 94, but if she'd been offered a deal like she was by the WWF in 1999, she could have easily come back. Candy Devine was a known women's champion. She wasn't doing much in the UWF at the time. Most of the glow wrestlers were waitressing or being prison guards. I wish I was kidding, by the way, about that. I'm sure the prospect of WCW creating a women's division would have at least been something worth taking weekends off to do, but that wasn't the goal of bringing in Medusa, and she knew it within five seconds after doing the trash bin segment. To her credit, though, she stuck around a lot longer than most of us would have and tried to make a go of it, but then WCW put the strap on somebody else who isn't even performing in the continental United States anyways. So the writing was really on the wall. At this point for her, and she's admitted this in many interviews, both shoot and kayfabe, that at this point it was a paycheck. <clears throat> Medusa stuck around uh, for a while collecting that paycheck and doing what she was asked to do, but also kind of cutting promos that leaned into that rebellious 90s wrestling landscape. But in 1999, WCW formed a partnership with uh, SFX Motorsports to create WCW-themed monster trucks to actually compete in Monster Jam. Now, these weren't the show pieces like the Hogan and Giant Trucks from 1996 pay-per-view. I think that was Halloween Havoc. I could be wrong. Medusa, though, was the only wrestler that stepped up and got her license squared away and ended up driving the truck that was themed after her in the first place. Now, she stepped up in a big way because for the next 14 years, she would make it every year to the World Finals. Now, you say that most of the trucks make it to the World Finals, and that's true, but most teams make it to the fucking championship rounds, so that's not really a fair thing. Plus, in 2004, she won the Freestyle Championship, and in 2005, she won the Racing Championship. There was no women's division, by the way. She won these things against dudes. Her truck was the only one, by the way, that survived WCW's demise. By contrast, Akira Hokuto wrestled mostly in Japan under the Gaia brand, which was unofficially, yet kind of still officially, an offshoot of New Japan. Think of them kind of like a female NXT to the WWE. Everyone knows that they're the same company, and yet NXT works really hard to separate itself and not be called a lesser brand of WCW, even though, technically speaking, it's the developmental territory. One of those, this isn't secret, but kind of gimmicks in wrestling. Um, and they don't always happen in wrestling, to be fair. They happen in baseball and hockey, too. She also had a nice run in CMML, uh, but um, CMLL, sorry. Uh, but they really just wouldn't let her fly in and leave, so she had to tour with them since they actually took women's wrestling seriously. Not seriously enough, though, to give a women's wrestling match 
on a pay-per-view until 2006, but you know, anyways, when you look at women's wrestling pre 2010, you see two things that stick out. One women's wrestling was taken seriously in Japan and to a lesser extent in Mexico. Number two, Women's wrestling everywhere else was effectively models who learned how to string three moves together so that they wouldn't always have to do cat fights in their underwear. Post-2010, though, <laughs> we're spoiled with the amount of women wrestlers <laughs> who put on wrestling matches that make some of the guys look like shit. Things have definitely improved over the years. Uh, in 1997, though, this build was fucking awful. And despite the matches being decent... Giving these women more time at house shows to work out their televised matches probably would have made things more bearable. I mean, at least there's an effort to build to the pay-per-view this time instead of just a thrown-together match on WCW Saturday night. Now, looking up all these women wrestlers this week and then bitching, of course, about their treatment sent me down a bit of a online rabbit hole, which I'm sure some of you have been down in the past. Um, this wasn't really dark, but it was a little dark. Um... I found a documentary called Gaia Girls. Now, if you think that um, <laughs> if you think that uh, Vice's Dark Side of the Ring is a little dark and hard to watch at times, this Gaia Girls documentary is fucking insane. Uh, I'm gonna post a link in the chat here. Hold on, let's throw it in there, and, I, and I'll also throw it into the uh, show notes uh, for the YouTube as well as uh, for the podcast. Um, holy shit! Uh, it's worth a watch, but I will warn you, it's it, it's a tough watch. Guy may have taken women's wrestling seriously, but my fuck, behind the curtain will blow your mind. I mean, unless, of course, you're a female wrestler pre-2000, and then this is pretty much just par for the course, and it may trigger some PTSD, so warning ahead of time. Um, in this case, though, this match was effectively a job match to make Hokuto look strong against a woman almost twice her age, which really didn't do much to help um, Combs look great, really, at this point. Um, she is older. Yeah, she's got floofy hair. Yes, Brain points it out over and over again, but Brain points it out tongue-in-cheek because he was one of her managers when, <laughs> when they were both in the AWA. Gene does a rant promo here afterwards with Medusa. Gene incorrectly claims that Medusa is the former champion. Nope. Okuto won the inaugural tournament, by the way. Medusa was indeed a former WWF Women's Championship belt, but uh, not the WCW Women's Champion. And in fact, spoiler alert, she'd never win the WCW World Women's title. Uh, she would go on to hold the WCW Cruiserweight title at one point, but uh, Hokuto performs a run-in here to build more heat for their match at uh, Spring Stampede. The Gaia wrestlers come out to pull Hokuto off of Medusa wearing their Letterman jackets. Eventually, Combs would try to pull Medusa off of the whole schmoz, but it was basically just a Donnybrook. It did an excellent job of actually selling the heat for the match, which again was not always the case with women's wrestling. And again, I hate that I'm happy that there was at least a two-week build for this one instead of overnight. Back from the break, the fans start chanting Weasel. <laughs> Some of the idiots of were also chanting Regal. I assume those are the same people holding up the uh, Confederacy battle flag as well, but they're clearly not in on the Weasel joke. Uh, the announcers recap some more NWO nonsense before yet another Sting vignette, uh, this time done a little bit better, so done by the A-team instead of the fucking interns. Back from break, we get a recap of last week's high-voltage victory over the public enemy after interference from Jarrett that led into Jarrett and McMichael's next match. So good production here. 
uh, bookers. Well done in retrospect. The amazing French Canadians, Carlo Ouellette and Jacques Rougeau with, of course, Colonel Robert Paquet in their corner defeats Jeff Jarrett and Steve McMichael with fucking Deborah in their corner. Uh, the funny thing is I gave this one four out of five, uh, for a lot of different reasons, but mostly because there was a lot that happened this match that really sold a lot of things at the upcoming pay-per-view while this match in itself was performed well. So points all around. Now, both Canadians wearing Quebec flags as poncho always stay classy. Awesome. Zero point zero. I don't know why you care. Neither of us are from Quebec. Why the fuck would we care if they cut up their goddamn flag? Oh, the 0.0 is for the Canadian flag? Yeah, I don't give a shit about that either. Uh, very solid match here, like I said. Then Public Enemy come out. They take the case from Deborah, but Parker steals it from Johnny Grunge. He gets it into Rougeau's hands, who nails Mongo with it, allowing Ouellette to get the pin for the victory. A pretty old classic, old-school wrestling-performed match here. I mean, 4-5 to five is not even being generous. It was just fun. It was good. It was a fun match. Post-match, there's an in-ring promo with Deborah. Mongo and Jarrett. Je Deborah starts things off. She gets tons of heat for just opening her mouth. Eventually, Jarrett and Mongo go at each other, and we go to break. I could have done without Deborah's portion, but ending it with that fight back and forth was a good way to close things out before the commercial break. Now, <clears throat> it is then back from break time to check in with that golden voice bastard, Lee Marshall, and his 1-800-COLLECT road report from the location of next week's Nitro, Huntsville, Alabama. Now, I'm not quite sure why he's not in Tupelo for Spring Stampede, but whatever. I guess he's going to go there next, which was a little bit odd. Now, the entire story of NASA, according to Lee Marshall, was that they were supposed to launch a weasel into space instead of a monkey for the first uh flight with an animal in the space but apparently the weasel just wouldn't stop whimpering and urinating on himself <laughs> oh i mean i'm just just recounting that still makes me laugh i don't know why i basically just told everyone that brain whines and pisses himself i just it's fantastic now brain as a uh, rebuttal to this once lee marshall will be hunting down hunted down and field dressed the whole segment was gold i just these are the ones that I enjoy. Uh, the ones where <laughs> Lee Marshall gets a dig in and Brain just dances with it. It's fantastic. And it actually works better when the two of them are able to talk before the show goes on because it seems like when Brain's ready for the slam, he's got a better rebut for the slam. And I think he might also help Lee come up with better material <laughs> so when they don't talk i imagine that's when the segment is not as strong <laughs> as it was this week chris benoit defeats hugh morris after this i gave that three and a half out of five morris comes out with yet another new jacket which still looks lame uh, the tassels man the fucking drapery tassels just stop it benoit comes down and gets picture picture side by side from last week's dungeon of doom beat down morris kicks things off <laughs> he gets hot it gets a bunch of heat Benoit does his comeback, gets a nice pop with his offense, getting good reactions from the crowd. Morris comes back, gets a good amount of heat again. Really a well-performed match here as both wrestlers were working the crowd for their respective heat and pop. Benoit ends this all with a German suplex. That's got to be the first time I've ever seen a fucking match end with a single German, uh, but whatever. Post-match is another dungeon beatdown uh, with no horseman to be found, of course. Woman tries to stop Jackie, gets a hard way open-hand punch. She sells it like a pro. Eventually, she gets her revenge, though, shaking the top rope and crotching Jackie from her second splash which by the way her splash was good but the first splash that she did 
there was like a flower that exploded on the mat sort of at the same time. And I thought that maybe she had a Lita thing happen to her. For those of you who don't know, an implant explodes. It doesn't come out of the chest, but it does a weird thing that creeps you out and freaks you out at the same time. Anyways, finally, Flair comes down to the ring, clears the ring. Anderson comes down for support, but stays out of the ring. Uh, there are quite a few low blows here from Claire, <laughs> from Claire, from Flair that get pops and groans from the crowd. Sullivan leaves the ring and starts walking after woman. Arn pulls her out of the way as fans soak Sullivan with a full fucking beer. Afterwards, Benoit gets a full hug from Anderson and Flair leading into the post-match promo with Gene and the Horsemen in the ring. Now, Benoit shoots a little bit on Arn, but then turns around Sullivan, cuts one fucking hell of a promo on him, and there's still some heat post-promo between Arn and Benoit. I don't know what they're trying to build to here, but I like it. After this, Diamond Dallas Page defeats Lance Ringo. I gave it two out of five. Who the fuck is Lance Ringo, you might add? Well... Fans who are around my age might remember him better as Raven's flock member Sick Boy, or maybe just as Scott Vick in WWE. He's another power plant graduate who debuted earlier this year in house shows. He's a natural. I just didn't end up getting pushed um, farther than tag feuds and some odd gimmick matches. He looks good. He wrestles well. He just can't work the stick to save his life. Uh, it's, he'd spend most of his career being that other guy in a tag team or jobbing to guys like Goldberg, which sucks because he's actually got a great look and he can work. I just, off script, he just looks like a lost little puppy, though. He did come out with Kim Page's Playboy uh, edition. Again, yes, I own this one. He got some cheap heat from the fans that worked. Um, there was a very cool transition to the diamond cutter from DDP here leading to the finish. Uh, overall, a decent match. Just, I I don't know. I, there's too many gimmicks going on. I, when there's too many gimmicks in a match, it just doesn't do anything for me. And jobbing out a guy that's just starting, even to DDP, just seems to do him a little bit of a disservice. Post-match is an in-ring promo with Gene and DDP. DDP and Kim are proud of this Playboy spread, but apparently DDP is not proud of what Savage and Liz did to both him and Kim. Savage comes out and finally knows DDP's name. Uh, there was a big Macho Sucks chant from the crowd as the promo goes on. Uh, fans get crazy into this. DDP ends this in such an awesome way by saying that if he has to bring the lady, Kim, then Savage better bring the fucking tramp in Liz. Uh, after this, the signers uh, defeat High Voltage. I gave that like another two out of five. Sorry, just, you know, I like High Voltage. I do. And I like the Steiners. It's just this wasn't a match really. It was just sort of a jobbing affair so that we could have a clusterfuck happen at the end. I just, I don't know. High voltage gets no entrance. Also, I, despite Tony pointing out that last week they were coming off a big win. Otherwise it's a pretty straightforward match. Scotty Steiner debuts the triple S, which is the Steiner screw suplex, um, which is a pretty shitty and dangerous pile driver. Uh, effectively what he does is he holds this guy and when he drives him down, instead of being able to use the guy's quads on your shoulders to protect your head and neck, you're dropped on your head on the guy's quads. And I'm sorry, but have you looked at fucking Scott Steiner's quads? Like, not to be gay, but fucking hell, they're harder than the ring. And sure enough, after the match is done, Robbie Rage is fucking dazed because his neck got jammed up because his head got driven into somebody's rock hard fucking quads. It's just, I don't know if he uses it again, but the next time he uses it, I'm going to bury it again because it's a shitty fucking move that 
even Scotty Steiner can't make safe. Uh, and listen, there's a lot of things he makes look safe, like the fucking Frankensteiner. Post-match, Nash and Six invade the announce position. Tanae and Shivani leave in a classy way, while Brain practically kills himself, climbing over the top of the table to clear out. Nash uh, informs us that he's about to puke, and he wants to cut a promo on the management of NWO since they're at Rodman's shitty movie debut. Now, I'm not sure that if it was a planned promo or not, meaning I'm not sure if this was in Eric's rundown or not. I can't imagine him green-lighting this, uh, given his fucking... um, vanity but it was fucking gold and if it was a work then i got worked so props to you overall nitro was good better than last week and some excellent work building to the pay-per-view um with the exception of course of those last couple of matches now if bischoff really was away at rodman's movie opening then it was sullivan and nash running the show and if that's the case they did an awesome job of building heat for the pay-per-view by the way if eric really wasn't there because we know that he wasn't we've got footage of him and hogan at rodman's shitty movie premiere but he denies it to this day anyways marketing guy is lying fucking newsflash this is wcw's run as the ratings leader and it is not a sure thing yet it's still really fucking tight just one fuck up and wwf getting their shit together one week and it could go either way this isn't the time to fuck around not that any time is the time to fuck around when you're being paid to do a job. And Bischoff is already showing that the fucking inmates are running the asylum and he's one of the goddamn inmates running that fucking asylum. Despite that bullshit, it was a very good show. Seamless. Some of the matches I didn't really like what they were doing with them, but again, there's a rational reason for it to be there. So again... Decent show. Four out of five. Well done. Well, that was an abortion of a show. Should the mood take you, check out markoutradio.com and leave a comment. You can also find links there to our Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Stitcher channels. You can even leave a voicemail on our Skype. Just click the links and share them.